morning. 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 Is this on? Can you hear me? You good? Do I need to push on? Check it. Okay. There we go. Well, good morning, brethren. I'm glad and humbled and privileged to once again fill the pulpit for Pastor Nate this morning and to be able to bring the Word of God to you all. Um, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. I humbly ask that you would enlighten our minds now to the truth of your Word. I ask that your Spirit enable and empower me to deliver your truth boldly and accurately. I pray, Father, that you would use this message to conform us more into the image of your Son, and that you would get glory for yourself through our lives. Amen. So, to begin this morning, I'd like to look at one particular example of greatness. Now, if I were to ask a room full of people, who is the greatest basketball player to ever live? There might be some debate, but I think an overwhelming majority would say Michael Jordan. Some of his stats, six NBA championship titles, five regular season MVP awards, 10 all NBA first team designations, nine all defensive first team honors, 14 NBA all-star game appearances, three all-star game MVP awards, three steals titles, six NBA Finals MVP awards, and the 1988 NBA Defensive Player of the Year award. Jordan holds the NBA records for highest career regular season scoring average and highest career playoff scoring average. Back in 1999, Jordan was named the greatest North American athlete of the 20th century by ESPN and was second only to Babe Ruth in the Associated Press's list of athletes of the century. He's a two-time inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2009 for his individual career and again in 2010 as a member of the 1992 U.S. Men's Olympic Team or the Dream Team, as some of you might remember, where he won Olympic gold. Now, while you may have a particular or personal favorite, an overwhelming majority of people when asked say that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever live. Through its near 70-year history, the NBA has seen thousands of players come and go, many of them great players, but none have been praised and exalted by men to the status that Michael Jordan has. To this day, he is still regarded as the greatest. In fact, Jordan is so popular, even 20 years after his retirement, sales of his popular Nike Air Jordan footwear and apparel have helped make him a billionaire. That's right, I said billionaire with a B. Yes, brothers and sisters, how we view someone matters. It affects how we act towards or interact with that individual. So I ask you this morning, how do you view Jesus Christ? Many people have many different viewpoints on who Jesus is. I mean, just within the realm of people who supposedly profess and accept love and say they love Jesus Christ, you have many different views of who Christ is. Look at the Mormons, for example. They believe that Jesus originally came into being as a spirit by means of God or Elohim having relations with one of his many goddess wives. They say Jesus' father, or Elohim, who was himself a created being, then came to earth as a man to have relations with Mary to give Jesus a physical body. 
They also say Satan or Lucifer, who was another of Elohim's spirit children, was Jesus' spirit brother. And it's not just the Mormons that have a deviant, unorthodox view of Jesus Christ. Some say Jesus didn't even exist, that he's a myth. Others say he was just a moral teacher who was a carpenter. Islam says he was a great prophet and even calls Jesus the word of God, but flat out rejects that he could ever be God's son, let alone God himself. And Jehovah's Witnesses, well, they say that Jesus is a created being who is a God, but deny that he is Jehovah or Yahweh. Even in many churches that would identify as orthodox, evangelical churches, there are people who have a one-sided view of Jesus Christ. Some say he is only love, and therefore they throw out and reject any notion of a wrathful God. In fact, just 10 years ago, in 2013, a committee from the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States, voted to not include the hymn in Christ alone in their 2013 hymnal because the writers of the song would not allow them to change the line till on that cross is Jesus God till on that cross is Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied to till on that cross is Jesus died the love of God was magnified you see that they hate the idea of a God who is holy who condemned sin and poured out his wrath upon his own beloved son in the place of sinners so much that they want it removed from people's minds. This is no small sect. This Presbyterian denomination has over 1.1 million members, nearly 20,000 ordained ministers, and more than 8,700 congregations. These people's view of Christ dramatically affects their doctrine and way of living. Case in point, the same Presbyterian denomination voted back on June 19, 2014, during their 221st General Assembly, to allow same-sex marriages to be performed by their ordained pastors and ministers. I say again, people's view of Christ dramatically affects their doctrine, and your doctrine, brothers and sisters, dramatically affects your way of living. Having a proper Christology is vital to our Christian lives. It will determine how we interact and relate to our Lord and to one another. One area in which I believe evangelicalism has erred a bit is in taking the imminence or nearness of God to a level that is void of reverent fear. Yes, we know that Christ is close to us. Of course, Jesus said himself during the Great Commission of Matthew 28, he says, Lo, I am with you always. Yet there is an overwhelming effort by many associated with Christianity, such as the Presbyterian Church USA, as well as those outside the church, to make Jesus more palatable to unregenerate ears. As one preacher has put it, the Jesus being preached in most pulpits today is a needy, sissified Christ. This Jesus is apparently so lonely and so needy, and he's so weak that he's just begging you to accept him. And unless you do, he will be greatly lacking and is powerless to do anything about it. Hmm. Does that sound like the Jesus that you know? The Jesus that saved you? I think we should let the word of God tell us who Jesus is. Amen? Amen. So it is the idea of one being exalted that we're going to be looking at this morning. Specifically, the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's quite possibly no better place to look at this in scripture 
Then the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. So we'll be unpacking these verses in our study this morning. And the precious truth, the truth that I believe that we will receive are four components of the exaltation that will compel us to worship Him. The first point being the person behind or responsible for the exaltation. The second being the person of the exaltation. The third point is the people subject to the exaltation. And the fourth point being the purpose of the exaltation. And as we discuss this exaltation, I hope we will see the importance of having this high and lofty view of Jesus Christ. Now, if I could ask you a question, how many of you have ever been to an amusement park or a theme park and you sat through one of those 3D presentations of a movie or a show? Do you remember what you had to put on to see the picture? These, those funny looking glasses, right? And so those glasses enabled you to see the picture clearly and it to pop out three-dimensional. And did you ever lift up the glasses while the show was going on to see what it looked like? If you recall, if you've done that, it was blurry, right? It wasn't clear, it was kind of fuzzy. And I think a lot of times that's what people can do with the Word of God. They take off these glasses, the spiritual lenses of Scripture, and so they have this distorted view of who God is. So this morning, it is my goal for us to put on these special glasses called the Word of God that enable us to see Christ for who He really is. And if we always have these glasses, so to speak, on, we can see Christ high and lifted up all the time, 24-7. I believe our problems will be solved, specifically our great sin of self-exaltation rather than exalting Christ. So if you will, please open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 9. The Word of God says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, You see in the beginning of this text, we have this connecting phrase for this reason at the beginning of verse 9, giving us the indication that we need to look back to the previous verses to see what Paul is alluding to. For the purposes of our study this morning, we're not going to be delving into those previous verses. But I will say this regarding the connector phrase for this reason. Christ's exaltation is inextricably linked to his humiliation. They go hand in hand. And as we will see, so important is an exalted view of Christ for the believer that Paul includes these verses on the exaltation of Christ, not just so that we can have better orthodoxy, but so that we can have better orthopraxy. Not just right believing, but right doing, right living. This understanding of Christ's exaltation is necessary and essential for proper Christian living and spread of the gospel which is a big theme in Philippians. Seeing Christ exalted will bring humility to the regenerated heart, thereby cultivating an unhindered unity that fosters an appropriate atmosphere amongst believers 
that is vital for the advancement of the gospel. With that being said, let's move forward to the focus of our study, the exaltation of Christ. Next in verse 9, we see a person doing an action. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him. Now we know who this person is whom God is exalting because we see in verse 5, verses 5 through 8, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom Paul is speaking of. And Paul transitions from Christ's humiliation right into his exaltation. And we'll get more into the person of the exaltation in a bit, but here we see the one doing the exalting, and this is our first point, the person behind the exaltation is God the Father. It is God the Father who exalted Christ as a result of him coming to this earth, giving up his divine privileges, per perfectly fulfilling the law, and dying a humiliating death on the cross in the place of sinners. So what does this mean, that God highly exalted Christ? I mean, what are the implications of that? Well, for one, we know that it means that God the Father saw Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf as acceptable and pleasing. It meant that when Jesus said, it is finished, that it truly was finished. That God's righteous wrath towards sinners was completely satisfied for those who believe in the agony and the curse of death has been removed for them. Yes, God the Father declared at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God's exalting of Christ more than confirms the Father's pleasure in His Son, and His resurrection was evidence and testimony of that to the watching world. Secondly, God exalting Christ is very significant and unique in another way. When God the Father exalted Christ, He was giving to His Son the very thing He prayed for in John 17. Do you all remember that? Jesus' high priestly prayer. When He asked of His Father, now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. This tells us a lot about the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Lord, Yahweh, says in Isaiah 42:8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, we know that, like Christ... We will be exalted and we'll share in that glory. Matthew 23, 12 and John 17, 22 speak to this point. But it will not be in the exact same way. For example, no one's going to be calling us Lord or worshiping us. Our exaltation and the glory we have been given by Christ, although amazing, is not identical to that of Christ. The glory that would be given back to Christ was an inherent glory. He says, the glory which I had with you before the world was. Brethren, this is a clear indication of the deity of Jesus Christ, and this glory is reserved only for him. So we've taken a look at some of the implications of God the Father exalting Christ. Let's take now more, a more in-depth look at the one who has been and is exalted. And this brings us to our second point, and that is the person of the exaltation. The person of the exaltation. And we're going to see, as we keep reading here, this, this beautiful, powerful, and historic event that is Christ's exaltation. And within that exaltation, we have Christ's resurrection, which we mentioned earlier, his ascension, his coronation, and intercession. 
As we just read, God the Father highly exalted his son. And this phrase, <coughs> highly exalted, it comes from the word huperupsu in the original language. And it's a compound verb comprised of two words. Huper, meaning over, beyond, more than. And hupso, which means to lift up on high, to raise to the very summit of opulence and prosperity, to raise to dig dignity, honor, and happiness. Simply put, huperupso is to give exceptional honor. An interesting note here is that this word appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It's almost as if Paul makes up this word here to describe the indescribable exaltation of the Son of God. Christ has been so highly exalted that Paul had to use two words, slap them together to try to get his audience to just see how high Christ's position really is. I mean, Paul could have simply just said exalted, and you would think that would be sufficient. But no, Christ's exaltation is so high, so lofty, so magnificent, that he uses this compound word, huperupso, highly exalted, to hammer the truth of Christ's elevated position. He is not just exalted. He is highly exalted. Second, Christ has something bestowed on him by the Father. Look with me at the middle of verse 9. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The, the word bestow is translated from the word charizomai, which means to give or present as a gift. So Christ is given this name by God the Father as a gift or reward. Now the idea here is not some sort of impersonal transaction, but God the Father lovingly and excitedly gives this gift to his son. It's kind of like this, right? If you're a parent and you've ever bought a Christmas present and maybe bought it a few weeks before Christmas and you wrapped it up and you hid it, and you're kind of more excited to give the gift than the kids are to receive it. You just can't wait for them to open it up and see this gift and the joy that will be on their face. That's kind of the idea here, right? God the Father so loves the Son, and the Son so pleased the Father that He's just beaming to bestow this gift, this name upon His beloved Son. So, what is this name then? Well, we have to jump down to verse 11 to see the name that Paul is referring to. Read with me in verse 11. And that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the name that the Father gives to Christ is Lord. Now the word Lord is translated from the word kurios. In his commentary in Philippians, John MacArthur actually does a very helpful um, explanation of the word Lord. He says... Quote, curios was a common term of respect in New Testament times, similar to the English word sir, but carrying a much higher degree of respect. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was sometimes respectfully addressed in this way. It seems probable that some of those who called him Lord did not, at least when they first encountered him, considered him to be more than a great teacher. Even the Twelve's understanding of his true identity was gradual and often tentative. And as Jesus himself made clear, even calling him Lord as an acknowledgement of his deity is not necessarily evidence of a saving relationship with him. You obviously see that in Matthew chapter 7, the passage, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
MacArthur goes on to say, because the Jews considered God's name too holy to utter, they substituted the title Lord in place of his personal covenant name, Yahweh, whenever it would have been spoken. Most modern English translations of the Old Testament therefore render the Hebrew word YHWH, Yahweh, as Lord with all capital letters. Consequently, God is called both Adonai, the Hebrew for Lord, lowercase o-r-d, a title of divine authority, and Yahweh, Lord, all caps, referring to his covenant name, which has the basic meaning of I am, as God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. When scripture was read, only a knowledge of the Hebrew text would enable a listener to know which term was involved. In preaching, teaching, or ordinary conversation, a listener could judge only by context. In the present text, Lord obviously refers to Jesus' deity and sovereign, exalted authority in the highest sense. End quote. I found Strong's definition was helpful as well. It says of Lord, He to whom a person or thing belongs, master, the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner, the sovereign. It also means one who exercises authority. The context, of course, will determine whether the word is referring to an earthly ruler or to God as the supreme ruler. Now, some of you might be asking yourselves right now, if Jesus was given the name Lord, was he not Lord before? That's a great question. I mean, what does it mean that Jesus was given the name Lord? It must mean that he wasn't Lord prior to his exaltation, right? Well, before we get into what it means that Jesus was given the name Lord, let's briefly discuss what it does not mean. It does not mean that the Son of God was not already Lord or God before his exaltation, or that he ceased to be Lord or God in essence or nature in his humiliation or incarnation when he took on human flesh and became a man. I want to repeat that because it's, it's really important. It does not mean that the Son of God was not already Lord or God before his exaltation, or that he ceased to be Lord or God in essence or nature in his humiliation or incarnation when he took on human flesh and became a man. We know that Christ was both Lord and God while he walked the earth as well as in eternity past. In fact, that's, what, that's exactly what Thomas exclaimed, right, in John chapter 20 after he realizes Jesus is truly risen. He says, my Lord and my God. We also have Jesus declaring himself to be Yahweh in the I Am statements of John's gospel before Abraham I was I am for example and Jesus affirms his lordship in passages like Matthew 12:8 when he says for the son of man is lord of the sabbath the son was is and always has been lord and god in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so then what does it mean that Christ was given the name Lord by his father in his exaltation. Well, when the Son of God left heaven and the Word became flesh, the Son gave up or laid aside his divine privileges. This is what is referred to as the doctrine of the kenosis or Christ's self-emptying. Again, this does not mean that Christ was not God as we have already discussed. While he walked on the earth, he was 100% God, 100% man, truly the God-man. What it means is that he did not assert his authority or divine privileges over his creation, but completely humbled himself and submitted to his Father's will, 
perfectly yielding every second of his 33 plus years of life on earth. Just to kind of give you a little analogy, picture a tiger, right? Now, a lot of people think lions are the biggest cat, but it's actually tigers. Um, they're bigger than lions. They weigh 800, 900, sometimes up to 1,000 pounds. They're just enormous. Now, there are tigers that are trained tigers, having been raised by their owners since they were cubs. These trained tigers play with their owners like a house cat, pawing around, wrestling with them, whatnot. These trained tigers have the same power and ability to completely maul and tear their trainers to pieces if they so desired. They have every prerogative to do that. They're powerful, wild animals. But they obey their trainer and do not use that power independently. Now, Jesus, of course, is not a trained tiger. His power and might are infinitely greater. But like that tiger, he did not assert any of his power or authority independent of his father. Unlike the tiger, who has been simply trained, Jesus was always aware of who he was and what he could do. If you recall, when their soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter strikes Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off, and what does Jesus say? Do you remember? Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion was about 6,000 soldiers. So more than 72,000 angels. One angel killed 185,000 people in one night, so says 2 Kings 19. And Jesus says he could call upon his father and he would send him more than 72,000. But what did Jesus say next to Peter? Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Do you see that? Jesus' humble submission to his father, that laying aside of his divine privileges. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Or in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, the doctrine of the kenosis comes straight out of the Philippians in, out of Philippians in the verses prior to our text this morning, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when it says God the Father gave Christ the name Lord, he was giving back ratifying and affirming a reality that had already existed but was not known to the world. It is now our responsibility as his disciples to go and tell the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are we doing this? Now that we have a better understanding of what it meant and didn't mean for God the Father to bestow upon Jesus the name Lord, let's move on to see what it, this bestowing looked like and how it took place in heaven. Now, this church is truly amazing. It's an amazing reality, and this picture I would like for us to have ingrained in our minds. See, within the exaltation of Christ, we have his coronation, his being crowned as king, and it is this that we need to grasp. 
I want to take us to that event and be witnesses of that. So to see us and to help us in seeing that picture, we're going to be reading from a few passages of Scripture. First, and you don't have to turn there, you can if you want. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. The second scripture we're going to read is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And then Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 through 10. And we're going to start with Christ's ascension into heaven. And then we're going to get a front row seat of his coronation. So I'm going to read these three passages and sort of interconnect them to give us this picture. So starting in Acts 1, verse 7. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So Jesus has just ascended. And now Daniel, in his prophetic vision, and David the psalmist, show us what happened on the other side of those clouds. From Daniel, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. You know, we hear what the Son of Man says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And someone cries out, Who is the King of glory? And the Son of Man answers, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Is this not amazing or what? Our Lord, our Messiah, our resurrected Savior is King. I mean, if this vision of Christ returning to heaven to take his rightful place on his throne doesn't move you in some way, excite you, compel you to worship him, You may be physically dead or spiritually dead or both. This is such an important message for the world around us to hear. People need to know of Christ's Lordship and they must submit to it. The apostles knew this and they preached this. In Peter's very first sermon on Pentecost, he declares, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you hear that? God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ over all. You see that? That declaration of Jesus' Messiahship and Lordship. But what often do we hear a lot of times in evangelism? Sometimes, oftentimes it looks something like this. If I were to go up to somebody, introduce myself, hello, can I share the good news of Jesus Christ with you? If that person was receptive, we may go on to tell them about man's sinfulness, right? 
God's holiness, God's justice, Christ's sacrifice for sinners. But then what is often said a lot of times in these these evangelistic sort of outreaches, the end, they make this offer. Would you like to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Right? It's something to that effect oftentimes. But what did Jesus say about himself? Or what does Paul say in our text in Philippians? What about Peter? What did he say in Acts 2? God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So if we're telling people, or asking people, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life? We should stop. We shouldn't do that anymore. But I mean, I understand the language that people use, and I've used that terminology myself before, but we should really be accurate and reflect the scriptures in our evangelism. I'm encouraging us to use this more accurate way. Right? A declaration, Christ is Lord. We need to submit to that lordship and go plead with others to do the same. I appreciated how one preacher put it that I heard. Um, he said it like this. Don't think I will even ask you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the most preposterous thing I could ever tell you to do. Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, whether you serve him or not. Whether you bless him, curse him, hate him, or love him, he is the Lord of your life because God has given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Some of you will bow out of the grace that has been given to you and others will bow because your kneecaps will be broken by the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. We don't hear about this Jesus very much, do we, in our society? But this is the Jesus of the Bible. The same Jesus that washed his disciples' feet is the same Son of God that didn't destroyed the entire population of the earth save eight people with a flood. It is this Jesus, this Lord, this powerful, almighty God that we must proclaim. Now, there is one other aspect of Christ's return to heaven that I want to briefly touch on. Not only was Christ given the name Lord, but when Christ returned to his Father, he returned to heaven as the unique God-man. And because of this, Hebrews says that he now makes intercession for us as our great high priest. This is an amazing truth. Our Lord intercedes for us. What a blessing to know that he's doing that even right now for us. Next. It says that this name, Lord, which God the Father bestowed upon Christ, is above every other name. So it's important to note here the word name is mentioned three times in these verses we're looking at this morning. And it means more than just a title. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament puts it this way. Quote, there was and is a worldwide belief that the name of an object, man or higher being, is more than a mere label or only incidentally associated with the one who bears it. The name is an indispensable part of the personality. One might say that a man is constituted of body, soul, and name, end quote. In scripture, God often gave names to people to indicate some sort of characteristic about that person. You remember Abram became Abraham, Jacob became Israel, Simon to Peter, and so on. The fact that Christ is called Lord is not just some title, but speaks to his very nature. He is by, by nature master and ruler of all things because he is God. And it says here that this name Lord is above every other name. 
this word above comes from the Greek huper, which we mentioned earlier as part of that compound word huperupso, which meant highly exalted. And in this context, it gives the idea of the name Lord <clears throat> being both above every other name, as in status, as well as above every other name in degree. In fact, the word huper can also be translated as beyond. So the name Lord is above every other name in rank or status, as well as beyond every other name in degree. The name Lord is so prominent in rank, you cannot get any higher. It is above all. And it is so beyond that which is above that it cannot be compared. So it says here, the name Lord is above every other name. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this, every other name. And that leads us to our third point. And that is the people subject to the exaltation. Now these subjects are actors in this passage as well. But before we get to what they do, we're going to discuss who they are. Now, there are three groups Paul mentions, and he leaves no ambiguity or room for faulty interpretation as to the extent of the exaltation. First, he mentions those who are in heaven. This would include the angels in heaven and the spirits of all believers from the beginning of time that have already gone to be with the Lord in heaven. Second, Paul mentions those who are on earth. Now, at Christ's return, there will be two groups of people left on earth. Those who have received Christ and are worshiping him in spirit and truth, and those who have rejected Christ and have worshiped the beast, as Revelation 13 talks about. The last group that is subject to Christ's exaltation is those who are, quote, under the earth. This phrase, under the earth, comes from the word katakthanias. And like huperupso, or highly exalted, it is unique to Philippians 2 and found nowhere else in the New Testament. Literally translated, it means world below. Now, oftentimes, when there aren't any uses or other uses of a word in the Bible, we can go outside of the Bible to see how that word was used in the culture of that time to help us understand what that word meant to them. Now, this word is found from as early as the time of Homer's writings in the 8th century BC, when Hades is described as Zeus Katakthanias, or Zeus of the Underworld. Now within the idea of Hades, or the Underworld, is included the fallen angels, the dead who have rejected Christ's or God's salvation, as well as the spirits now in prison, which are the demons already bound in the abyss to whom Jesus went and made proclamation between his death and resurrection, by which he triumphed over them. And this is referenced in 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 2. So with these, these three groups, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Paul encompasses the entire spiritual and intellectual universe. There is nothing and no one not subject to Christ's exaltation and lordship. Now that we see who's involved, let's see what they do. This leads us into our fourth and final point, and that is the purpose of the exaltation. And it is twofold. First, going back to the beginning of verse 10, read with me here, beginning of verse 10, so that, and here comes the purpose, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now, the phrase, every knee will bow, is taken right out of Isaiah and is in fact spoken by the very mouth of God. It says in Isaiah 45, 22-23, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and, I, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow. Now, this posture of bowing down on one's knees symbolizes and, and signifies complete submission. It was those 7,000 faithful Israelites in 1 Kings 19 that God describes as not having bowed their knees to Baal. The fact that all will bow before Christ again shows Jesus is God. Something that God says people are going to do to him is done and fulfilled in Christ, thereby showing that unique oneness and unity the Father and Son share in the Trinity along with the Holy Spirit. The next it says, every tongue will confess. The word in the original language for confess means to acknowledge or agree. So what does everything that's ever been made do? It bows down in submission and agrees by verbal confession that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is Lord. No one will dispute, debate, or wonder who the ruler and master of the whole universe is when all is said and done. The atheist, the Christian, angels, demons, and Satan himself will all agree, confess, and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will all bow down before him. Some will do this because they love Jesus and are glad to bow before their king, just as the song says, in humble adoration. And yet others will bow out of sheer terror because the Lord whom they blaspheme will be their judge and they, when they stand before him on that day. Unless you think this sounds a bit harsh or maybe not like the Jesus you're used to hearing and comfortable about, um, Let's listen to this from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What about this passage from chapter 6 of Revelation? Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That question, who will be able to stand, is a rhetorical one. No one who is not in Christ will be able to stand in that great and terrible day of the Lord. Just as it would be impossible for someone to stand if I took a full swing at their knees with a baseball bat, so too it will be impossible for anyone who does not have a saving relationship with Christ to stand before Him and not bow. 
Now, to those who are in Christ, theirs will be a much different experience. This is what Jesus said it would be for them. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a contrast, right? What a day to look forward for us who have been born again. The second part of the purpose of the exaltation, we might say that this is the ultimate end goal of the exaltation of Christ, is found at the very end of verse 11, which says, To the glory of God the Father. And this is it. This is all that ultimately matters, that God is glorified. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it very succinctly. What is the chief end of man, children? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? It is that that should characterize our pursuits, our decisions, our free time, our focus, our desires. Are they done to the glory of God, right? Paul writes to the Corinthians, whether we eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Now, by way of reminder and encouragement, and to help spur us on toward love and good deeds. Some questions. Is your food, that which satisfies you, what drives you, what you truly live for, to do the will of God and accomplish His work? As Jesus said in John 4, was His true food. Are you submitting to Jesus' Lordship and conducting yourselves as slaves who are doing what Jesus commands you to do and do desire to do this? Are you proclaiming to others the truth of the gospel and inviting them through repentance and faith to come under the loving care of this wonderful master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you worshiping Christ with a pure heart, daily confessing and repenting of your sins? Are you bowing before him and praising him for who he is and what he's done for you now, every day? Heaven will be an eternal experience of unhindered and perfect worship. And while we can't experience that in this life, what's keeping us from seeking to have that deep communion with God now if that isn't already a reality for us? It's the one thing Jesus told Martha was necessary to sit at his feet, learn from him, and worship. I will end with this beautiful quote by George Whitfield. It says, Matter for praise... And adoration can never be wanting to creatures redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, who have such continual scenes of his infinite goodness presented to their view, that were their souls duly affected with the sense of his universal love, they could not, be, they could not but be continually calling on heaven and earth, men and angels, to join with them in praising and blessing that high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, who maketh his sun to shine on the evil and on the good, and daily pours out his blessings on the whole race of mankind. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for your word that you've given to us today. Thank you for the exaltation of Christ, that we have a mighty Savior, not the Jesus that the world preaches or is palatable for, but for us, our mighty God who gave up himself on the cross for our sins, for our shame, took our iniquities upon himself. Thank you for 
loving us as your children and that one day we will be with you in heaven to worship you unhindered and we cast off these bodies of death and one day we'll be raised up again in glory. Help us in all we do to glorify you and to see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up, exalted, because you are the exalted Christ. Amen. Thank you.